Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Caleb Shreve, founder and CEO of Killphonic Rights. First, let's start here. The internet is super powerful, and we're on it most of the day, whether we know it or not. But it's interesting to find out exactly what's going on every minute of the internet day. So every year, the research company Domo puts out a Data Never Sleeps report that provides a range of stats pretty much about the internet and app usage, and it's always a surprise. So a couple of things right off. Users now submit 6,944 ChatGPT prompts every minute. X, formerly known as Twitter, is actually seeing more engagement this year with 360,000 posts every minute, and that's up from 347,000 year before. Amazon users are spending an astounding $455,000 in the app every minute. There are 6.3 million searches that happen on Google every minute. LinkedIn users submit 6,060 resumes every minute. Here's a bad one. Cybercriminals launch 30 attacks every minute. Venmo users send $463,000 in payments every minute. There are 241 million emails sent every minute. There are 4 million Facebook posts every single minute. And 3,720 users download Instagram threads. Airbnb guests book 747 stays every minute. Viewers watch 43 years of content every minute. And finally, Taylor Swift fans stream 69,400 song streams per minute. So if you think that you're on the internet a lot, yeah, you probably are, but guess what? The rest of the world is too. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that my new Musician's AI Handbook is now available. It's packed with information about how AI can help you with new song, lyric, mixing, and mastering ideas, as well as music marketing to help you get your music out to the audience that you deserve. To get your copy, go to rebrand.ly forward slash AI Handbook. That's rebrand.ly forward slash AI Handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. Everyone assumes that Alexander Graham Bell invented the microphone, and that's kind of what the history books tell us. It's a little more complicated than that, though. It turns out that the origin of the word microphone actually was coined in 1827 by Sir Charles Wheatstone, and there was no product here. What he was describing was an acoustic amplifying device that could take weak sounds and make them louder, kind of like a stethoscope. The original idea for a microphone came about in 1854 by Charles Bursell. And since the telegraph was big at that time, what everybody wanted to do was actually send their voice over the telegraph. So Charles Bursell came up with an idea on how to do that. The thing about it is he didn't build a device, so he couldn't demonstrate it. So that leads up to 1849-1850, Antonio Murci and his speaking telegraph. And he was actually able to make this happen, at least on a very experimental level. It took a really long time until he was recognized, though. 2002, 
the United States House of Representatives essentially recognized him as the inventor of the telephone instead of Alexander Graham Bell. But this gets more complicated. Philip Reese came up with the telephone, and this was in 1860, 1861, where he came up with the contact microphone. And the real problem was, yes, it could transmit speech, but it wasn't very intelligible. So it wasn't that big a deal, even though he claimed to be the father of the telephone for a long time. In 1875, Alexander Graham Bell came along. And finally, you can understand what the dialogue was because he invented the electromagnetic microphone, kind of an offshoot of what we use today. But then, in 1877, Emil Berliner came up with the carbon microphone and claimed that he was the father of the microphone and the father of the modern telephone. And in fact, he was granted a patent on this as the inventor of the microphone, the inventor of the telephone. They reversed their decision a year later and granted the title to Thomas Edison. Now, the reason why I bring all this up is the fact that things haven't changed all that much since then. Yes, we have different types of microphones. We have a ribbon microphone, we have a condenser microphone, and we have the dynamic microphone, but they're all based on the same idea from way, way back in 1850s. In the meantime, we've tried different things. we tried lasers. Now, this is used in espionage, where they'll shoot a laser at a window pane, and we'll be able to pick up the vibrations of someone talking. Now, is it great sounding? No, but the fact of the matter is, it is picking up sound. There's also a fiber optic microphone. And finally, what has the most promise is a MEMS microphone, microelectric mechanical system. This is basically a solid state microphone on a chip, on an integrated circuit. And we're seeing these more and more being rolled out. Originally, they were mostly for measurement. Now we're seeing them actually in other uses as well and starting to be seen in music. But there's still the problem of extended frequency response, especially on the low end, that has to be overcome. So here's the point. Microphone technology has been around for a really long time, but it hasn't changed all that much. My guest this week is the founder and CEO of Kilphonic Rights, Caleb Shreve. Caleb began his professional career in 1998 at Sony Music Studios in New York. As part of the Sony Music Special Projects team, he began working alongside artists like Michael Jackson, Ricky Martin, Destiny's Child, and Mark Anthony. In 2003, Caleb left Sony to work independently as a producer and engineer, where he was quickly hired almost exclusively by music producer and executive Sean Puffy Combs. Over the next decade and a half, Caleb wrote, produced, and mixed countless records. He started Kilphonic Rights in 2014, originally as a management company, but eventually pivoted to administrating publishing and neighboring rights for indie artists. During the interview, we spoke about the importance of metadata, why there are so many writers on some songs, collecting TikTok royalties, the idea of neighboring rights, and much more. I spoke with Caleb from his office in Los Angeles. You started as a musician, so just give me an idea of how you got in the business then, how you started playing, and what led from one thing to another. Well, uh, I was in a band in high school, and um, I actually have a bit of a surprise for you. In my first band, I was in back in New York. My first record was produced by a guy named Paul Ill and yourself, oh. actually. <laughs> you were, we came out to LA and we met Paul. We brought him back and he brought you with him. And uh, at Unique. Recorded, at Unique, yes. Yes, I remember. 
And then I came out to LA and we mixed it, I think, at your studio here. So, uh, yeah, that was my start. I was probably 18 years old or something. I was like in 1997, maybe. Wow. I was just thinking about that the other night, actually. <laughs> really? Yeah. And it's funny because I was just, I don't know what got me onto it, but I remember thinking, I wish we wouldn't have tried to do so much in such a short period of time and just concentrated on one song and getting it great rather than recording. I really think that there's obviously so many people you work with throughout, throughout your career. And I, I always wonder like what happened to some of the people that I worked with 10, 15 years ago. And Cool. Okay. So from there, what happened? So you got your, your start in New York or in the New York area and then where to go from there? Yeah. So uh, after that, I went on to to work, I, went, I think I'd already done an internship at Sony before that time. And then uh, I went back and became like an assistant engineer at Sony Studios in New York, worked my way up, became a, an engineer and got put on the special products team. So I was like part of all these amazing records. I got to work with Michael Jackson, Jennifer Lopez, Ricky Martin, all of their uh, high priority clients as an engineer for many years. Through that, I then Left Sony, I was freelance. I worked with Puffy for a while. I was his like traveling engineer and stuff for his, for Bad Boy. I didn't work for Bad Boy directly. I worked for Puffy directly, but traveled all around the country working with him, recording records. And then I had kind of like made enough money. I remember I could like pay my rent for a whole year. So I was like, I'm going to quit engineering. I'm going to pay my rent and I'm going to dig into producing and just like produce as many records for little or no money just to get my feet wet. And I was lucky because it was, I was living in New York and that's when like the Brooklyn indie rock scene came up and that was my, my world. I was like an indie rock kid in high school and stuff. So <clears throat> yeah, I did a couple of cool indie rock records, kind of kept my roots or at least some of my um, connections in, in the pop world. And then I ended up producing and writing a couple of songs for Jennifer Lopez, um, signed her publishing deal with BMG. And then my kind of my career kind of took off from there. I was I just did I did Switchfoot. I did a record for them. I worked with Tegan and Sarah, Fanagram, like all these like kind of cool indie rock and pop bands and things like that through through the, my time in New York. And then I moved out to LA in 2015. I think like shortly after I got here, I realized that I was tired of doing the like songwriting circuit and having artists come by and work with me for six hours and then take off. Kind of actually what we were just talking about like wondering what happened to them. Like these artists, it wasn't that they wouldn't use my songs. They just would like disappear. And I was kind of like, what, what can I do to not, <clears throat> you know, waste time with these like developing artists that are not really kind of sticking. So my partner at the time and I decided to start a management company, um, figuring that he was also in a band that was, did really well in the nineties. He had a lot of touring experience. I had a lot of experience at the labels. So we started managing artists and I quickly found that that none of the artists we were managing had a good solution for publishing. Like, um, you know, there was co-pub deals, there was Cobalt, and then there was basically Song Trust. So, you know, if you didn't want to sell your rights and you didn't have access to Cobalt, you know, your only option was Song Trust at that point. I kind of thought there was a better way. So I knew that mostly what the artists were missing were the mechanical royalties. Those things were not reciprocal like the performance royalties were. So we first, and in the U.S., this is 2019, so the MLC hadn't started yet. So we we affiliated with Harry Fox. Then we went to Canada and got CMRA. Um, and then we kind of started just chasing money where our clients had it. So we went to MCPS in the U.K., and we went to STEM in Sweden. We went down to Mexico and went to, to SACM there. And 
started kind of developing a network of mechanical societies that we could run our management clients through and kind of built a little bit of a network similar to what Amor had for Cobalt, where they were just getting digital rights and mechanical royalties from the societies around the world. <clears throat> and then the MLC came up. And um, at this point, I had been pretty dug into, you know, publishing rights and publishing royalties, mechanical specifically. And I saw the board, another uh, like podcaster and Instagram influencer in the music space had like published the the proposed board for the MLC and it was all major label executives and it didn't really sit right with me because I knew that this there was a ton of money in this black box that only belonged to independent writers so I called a friend this guy uh well actually the music answers people which is a friend of mine this guy David Walford in New York he sent out an email like the night or the next day after I saw that proposed board and he basically was like if you think this is weird you're totally right. It is weird. These majors have a huge conflict of interest. They shouldn't be collecting this or they shouldn't be responsible for collecting this money and finding the artists because they've already gotten all theirs, theirs and it's just a conflict of interest all around. So I called David after I saw that and I was like, can I do anything to help? And he said, you should talk to Jeff Price. Jeff had Jeff's the guy who founded TuneCore yep. and he was putting together an alternative board of independent publishers to, <clears throat> to try and outbid the, uh, the majors for the for the designation of the MLC. So uh, Jeff and I immediately clicked and he put me on the new submission that he was putting together. And uh, we fought really hard. I mean, I hosted a, a town hall here in LA that Jeff came out for with this other guy, John Barker. And and uh, we ultimately, unfortunately, lost that bid, as everybody knows, and the majors took it over. So it was like one night, a couple, maybe a couple months or a month after we lost, uh, Jeff was on the phone with David Lowry, the guy from Cracker, who is now a professor and a songwriting advocate. And um, the two of them, oh, sorry, I need to put this on focus. Uh, the two of them were like, it must have been like, I think they called me at like 10 or 11 at night on the West Coast, and they were both on the East Coast. So it had to be like one o'clock in the morning, and they were just like getting enraged about the fact that we lost. And, and uh, I think David was was seeing some things on the other side that were making him uncomfortable. And he called Jeff and we're like, we need to find somebody to start a company that's going to hold their feet to the fire. And Jeff was like, I think I have the guy. And they called me, like I said, on three-way and and just kind of were like, will you start a company to hold the MLC and get as many people as you can signed up to get that money out of the black box? And kind of like uh, stupidly said yes. And was like, sure. <laughs> I already started. I already had all these... Uh, these rights, all these mechanical royalty societies on my network. And we'd gotten, I think, a YouTube PLA at that point too. So we had YouTube covered and we had all these mechanical societies. And yeah, I partnered up with another tech person to kind of help us build the open platform that we had for a minute and just kind of went out. And then this is like late 2019. So then 2020 hit and the pandemic hit in March and I was at home and I just started calling all my like indie rock friends and people that I didn't have publishing deals. And I was like, we're all sitting at home. Like, let me go out and register your songs and collect your mechanicals. And we just kept, you know, it was all online. So we just kept registering more and more societies and we kind of filled out the network. Um, we started a company in Japan and Australia because those territories require physical presence on the ground there. I hired a Japanese um, administrator to help me who works now for us and yeah, we just kind of, like I said, filled out the rest of our mechanical society. Then we started going around again and did all the performance uh, societies as well. And then we were like, we're a full service publishing administrator. 
and then I uh, we got a we got a big client in this in this record label. We got a hard rock label signed to us, and that really kind of funded us to hire some more A and Rs and more admin people. And uh, then we hired a sync team, and you know we kind of got a full service publishing company, and um, yeah, and that's kind of where we got to today. Okay, you mentioned black box a couple of times, and for those who don't know what that is, can you describe that? Yeah, so basically when Spotify started, and I mean they started in the late. 2000s but they they started in the u.s i think in 2011 2012 and they the the mechanical royalty for publishing is the royalty for the reproduction of the composition so there's performance royalties which ascap and bmi collect and that's for any public performance or broadcast of this of the composition and the mechanical is the reproduction of it Traditionally, the labels were responsible for paying the mechanical royalties when they produced CDs and physical products that they were making reproduction. Then Spotify took over when streaming came, I believe mostly because the copy happens from Spotify's server to your phone. That's where the copy is. And um, <clears throat> and you couldn't really kind of pre-determine how many streams you were getting as a label. So Spotify took over paying the mechanical royalties. They knew they had to pay these royalties to the songwriters, but in 2011 2012 they weren't requiring that any of the publishing information was uploaded when they uploaded the songs so they just didn't know who to pay this money to and it sat in escrow and kind of built and built and built and built and then it ended up at the end that all the dsps had about 400 and i think it was 446 million or 464 million dollars in unpaid mechanical royalties <clears throat> and that was dubbed the black box so it was just all of this money that they knew belonged to songwriters but they didn't have the information or metadata or contacts to find those people. So that was why they created the MLC in the Music Modernization Act was to help find, to help identify and get these people paid for their for their uh, mechanical royalties that accrued on Spotify. Yeah, and that was what the MLC was for. Okay, so how successful is that? From the, the standpoint that if you didn't upload your metadata to begin with, then how do you find someone or if it's uploaded incorrectly just as bad yeah exactly it's i mean it was it was it's terrible i mean the metadata in publishing is really bad all the time and and across every part of it so basically the the idea was the mlc was going to have a lot of education as to what these royalties were and that the fact that they existed as the mlc and that these royalties were sitting there on hold unfortunately though in the mma in the law that they passed that they made they entered a timeline so if you didn't collect your royalties within a couple of years they were allowed to distribute all of the money from the black box by market share so the majors would get the most of it universal would get the biggest lump sum and then sony and then warner and, and down the line so <clears throat> there was really a conflict there like there was no incentives for the the board who were made up of major label executives or major publishing executives to find this to find these people because if they couldn't they'd get all the money in the end so anyway yeah the 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 process was supposed to be a lot of education and just kind of reaching out and trying to find as many people as possible as money belonged to but they've been incredibly bad at it they uh they've matched very little of the black box money to the original publishers um it's really been 100 percent on people like us and other um publishing administrators to go to them and find the money that they know they're owed. But if you're an independent writer who doesn't have an administrator and doesn't know about the MLC, they're just, your money's sitting there and it's not going to be matched to you. 
So um, <clears throat> they like they have a lot of big statistics out about how much money they've actually distributed, but really the the lion's share of that is new money because once they took over uh, the MLC, took over the mechanicals. Now they are responsible for paying all of the mechanicals from Spotify and Apple. So most of the money they've matched is new money that's been accrued or created since the MLC started. Uh, the black box is still relatively, it's not untouched, but it's in like the single to low double digit percentages of how much it's actually been matched. So, Okay. So you, you mentioned that across the board, metadata is bad in publishing. Why is that? Um, well, one is there's no true source of data. So in like a, in a distribution scenario, one person distributes the song. So you go to your distributor and you say, Hey, I'm the artist or I'm the label and, and here's the record. And mostly all the money is paid to you. There might be some, some people that participate that you direct the distributor to pay to, but it's mostly one person uploading it to the distribution company. Royalties on the publishing side are from the back end. So it's got every person has their own administrator and their own access to ASCAP and BMI. And it's the majority of it's bad education. So like we have a lot of people who will come to us and tell us that they have 100% of the publishing on a song because they own 100% of their publishing. They've never done a publishing deal. They've never sold any of it. So they're like, yeah, we did. They don't really understand the idea of splitting a copyright. So you know, we'll go and get conflicts and then we'll come back to the artist and say, hey, there's a co-writer on this song. And they're like, yeah. And we'll be like, why did you put 100%? And they were like, because I own 100% of my publishing. And you're like, right, but you only own 50% of the copyright because your co-writer owns 50%. So <clears throat> if you can imagine in that world, there's all kinds of different people all giving different information to their representatives who are then submitting it. And the conflict resolution is pretty hard. I mean, <clears throat> if you think about a three-way split, this is always funny, but... In a three-way split, there's 33% to one person, 33% to another person, and 34% to one person because three, 100 divided by three that leaves a remainder. And you wouldn't be surprised, but usually all three people will claim the 34% for themselves, which makes the song 102% and it's overclaimed. So, you know, these things, these details are often not worked out. And then, and then you attach things like an IPI number, which is your international party identifier that identifies you in the system and People mix those up. Um, I mean, people, I mean, I hate to say it, spell their own names wrong sometimes. The artist names are constantly misspelled. I mean, it's just, like I said, there's so many different people involved. I mean, especially these days, too. I think the average song on the Billboard chart has like five or six writers these days. So, and it's not five people in a band together. It's five or six different people from different places that have different publishing administrators and different perceptions of what happened in the studio. And don't have the full picture of, like I said, the artists, the song titles, the other writers, their publishers. So <clears throat> there's just constantly different pieces of data coming in from all different sources. So, and you know, they don't, they often kind of promote you leaving it out if you don't know. We do get something. So we use a system called CWR to register. There's a thing called an ACK file that we get back from a CWR, and that does fill in some of the blanks if the society has it. But if they got the wrong information from somebody else and they send us back the wrong information, it's like, you know, it's no good to us. And then we have to figure out the true, you know, like I said, the, the true source of, of data. I mean, the true source of data only comes from, from uh, you know, agreeing on it. So um, it comes from consensus in, in publishing. It's not like distribution where one person is in charge. So that's really like the main problems. There's also... 
when you think about it, it's a worldwide network. So in other countries, there's translating. Sometimes there's translations of songs into English for registrations in the U.S. There's translations into Japanese, into German. And yeah, there's just, I mean, there's so many, so many issues that can arise and there isn't really a, a system that has figured it out yet. I saw some rap songs that were hip hop that were 21 writers deep. Yeah. You know, ridiculous stuff like that. And I understand why they do it, why the artist does it, because they don't want any conflicts later on. So if you're in a room while we're writing this, you get credit. But the big problem is not everybody realizes who else is a writer in that and who else is involved. So I can see how that would be a huge problem down the line where you, you don't know how many people are actually involved in this. Well, one of the funny things is uh, I think some of those, the 21 writers and hip hop songs is because they have sample. And when you sample, the writers from the original sample are credited as writers as well. That's so true. Yeah. I actually saw there was a, we have a G easy song on our roster that was a sample of a lyric from a Kanye song, Kanye West song. Uh, the Kanye West song had sampled Daft Punk and Daft Punk had sampled some soul band from the seventies. <laughs> so there was like probably yeah 20 to 25 writers in the song, but it just kept going back layers and layers deep from the sampling of the sampling of the sampling of the sampling. So, you know, in that situation, it's like <clears throat> you have people who own the original copyrights who don't understand, you know, what the the statutes are for sampling and, and the licensing. And it's just like, you know, one's license another to another and they just keep getting diluted and people start to get upset because maybe the sole sample the people who own that copyright were expecting 50 percent from daft punk but then daft punk's reduced when kanye samples it so then g easy samples kanye it's like the original soul licensee is like no but i just i get 50 percent, so they would go register 50 percent of the g easy song and it messes everything up so there's so many problems i mean i could i have a million stories that i could go through from bad registrations and bad data that one you just described makes my head hurt <laughs> just yeah. thinking about it jeez yeah it does okay so you're dealing with indie artists all the time and let's face it you were there you know what it's like to be a songwriter where that's all you care about you know maybe you're you're concerned with the business but getting the education especially what you need on on the level you're talking about for a lot of artists or songwriters, they'll just throw their arms up and say, eh, I just I just want to write. That being said, what do you do in a case like that to educate them? I mean, you know, I, I, I'm always available for any questions people have. And, and it does take a couple times too. Like I don't think I've ever really broken down publishing to somebody where they didn't have to go take a couple of days and come back to me and clarify a couple of things. I mean, what I try to do, which is really hard too, is to just, you know, tell them to to trust a couple people. Like there are people like us who are really trying to help artists get paid and get their money. I and mean, that was like, I got into production because I wanted to help artists see their vision of a record, you know, come to fruition. And when I got out, I was like, I really want to help artists make sure that whatever their art is, you know, I mean, like one of the reasons I stopped producing too, is that I just didn't feel as connected to the artist anymore. I mean, I was, I'm 45 years old now, you know, sit in a room with a, a 21 year old who's really on TikTok all day, which just was not connecting with me. So, I mean, one of our head of a and always jokes that like, I don't really listen to much music or like much new music, but I do believe that whatever it is, the people and the artists deserve to get paid for it. So I am really here to help them 
find their money. So if they can trust in a, in a partner like that, then, you know, they don't necessarily need to know where it is. I, I that's what we do. We're, we, that's our core competency is to find your money everywhere in the world. It's pretty easy to com- to conceptualize how many royalties there are. There's really four main royalties. There's, if you look at it, we actually, our logo is a circle with four quadrants. And that's based on the chart that I had made originally to des- to describe royalties to people. Um, <clears throat> there's the master and the publishing, which most people understand. The one's a copyright for the sound recording and a copyright for the composition. And then each of them have <clears throat> just two usages. There's there's the public performance or broadcast, and then there's the reproduction, which is the mechanical. And they happen on both sides. So, you know, ASCAP and BMI collects the performance of the publishing. The MLC collects the mechanical in the U.S. for the mechanical publishing. The Spotify pays for the reproduction of the master. That's your artist royalties. And then the bottom left, which I think is one of the things we're going to talk about was neighboring rights. So that's the public performance of the master. <clears throat> that embodies the the master recording, and it also embodies the artists who feature on that on that recording. And these royalties are split up. Performance royalties for the publishing are split again between the writer and the publisher. So things get broken down more. And, you know, there's things like sync licensing, but even sync licensing, really, I had a kind of debate with some professors from NYU. So I often speak there and at other colleges to try to educate people. So, you know, is sync licensing a different royalty? Not really. It kind of follows the same pattern. You get a performance royalty. The license itself is a different revenue stream, but the four royalties are really those. So you can kind of understand that, then you know that you've got your artist royalties coming from Spotify or your distributor. You know, you've got your ASCAP or BMI collecting your pub, your performance royalties in the publishing. You know, you could go to the MLC. You're still missing international mechanicals, but you know, if you find a publishing administrator to administrator to cover the publishing half and then you figure out your naming rights and your artist royalties on the master, you're covered. So you don't necessarily need to understand them all. You just need to find the right people to help you collect them. Let's come back to neighboring rights for a second. Can you describe that in more detail? Yeah. So the neighboring rights are in the essence I've, I've had like so many people are so confused about neighboring rights are it's really simple. It's the public performance of the master recording. So it's the sound recording copyright. Every time it's publicly performed, well, not every time, but there are certain royalties associated with the public performance. In the U.S. specifically, we pay for the public performance of the sound recording for uh, internet and satellite radio broadcasting. So that's Sirius XM mostly, but a lot of like webcasted internet radio stations and stuff like that also qualify for neighboring rights in the U.S. In the rest of the world, or most of the rest of the world, they pay neighboring rights for terrestrial radio, which is AM, FM radio, television broadcast, all kinds of other usages around the world. That was designated during something called the Rome Convention that happened in the 1960s that kind of tried to unify the the ideas of intellectual property and copyright internationally. They, They kind of got together in Rome, and I think it was 1961, and kind of came up with this universal idea of copyright. And during that they kind of set these standards for <clears throat> public performance of the master compositions, things like that. The U.S. didn't sign on to the Rome Convention, so we actually—I believe—one of three countries. I think it's the U.S., Iran, and North Korea—the only three that wouldn't sign on to the Rome Convention. So, 
Um, it's a strange company for us to be in, but it was because our radio lobbies were so strong, they wouldn't let us do it. So some societies around the world, like uh, PPL is the sound exchange of the UK. Sound exchange is our neighboring rights society here in the US. The PPL um, will pay neighboring rights for recordings and artists or, or artists who record their songs in Rome Convention territories. So if you record it in Canada, if you record it in the UK, even if you're a US citizen, as long as the song is recorded in a, in Rome Convention country, it's eligible. That's why some people, some people come to me and they think neighboring rights is about international recordings and things like that, but it's <clears throat> really neighboring rights is just about the public performance of the master. But yes, the Rome Convention comes into play about where you're eligible for neighboring rights and which ones. Some places, um, I believe Switzerland is one, just cares about citizenship. So if you're a US citizen, because we don't pay Swiss artists for terrestrial radio here, they won't pay us for terrestrial radio in Switzerland. Germany, which is the GVL, has kind of recent, very recently said that if you come to us directly, <clears throat> we will pay you no matter who you are or where your song was recorded. But yeah, there's a lot of um, a lot of really intricate details to who and what you're eligible for around the world for naming rights. It's one of the most complicated rights. Okay, so he just talked about was the Rome Convention. Yeah. Okay, so 1961. Obviously, and and really, we haven't had copyright reform in the United States since 1998. Obviously, yeah. that needs to be redone. Do you oh, see yeah. this happening in the future? I do actually. I, I'm I've been trying to be positive. So there is the Fair Play Act right now in Congress. Islamic Exchange sends emails about it constantly to call your congressman. The 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 Fair Play Act is going to include AMFM radio and our neighboring rights if it passes. And originally, they've been trying since 1998, basically, to get uh, AMFM radio to be included in neighboring rights. And it's always failed in committee. The, the radio lobby was too strong to ever get it out of committee. It actually, this year was the first time that it got out of committee and is supposed to go to the House floor. And we were all really excited about it because... They didn't think that the radio lobby really had enough clout or money or, or power anymore to kind of buy out all of Congress with lobbyists. And Congress is generally tries to be somewhat artist friendly if they can, if they understand it. So got out of committee. It was supposed to go to the floor, I believe, in August or something. But um, they basically found a few uh, congressmen to who will... Um, filibuster it and it never got to a vote and it still hasn't been voted on so right now it's stalled in the house of representatives but it did get out of committee and it's it's in it's lying in wait on the house floor right now so if it ever does come to a vote i believe it'll pass and i believe that that reform will come you know the interesting thing here is it's too little too late when it comes to radio because now there's not so much music that's played on it it's mostly talk and sports, things like that. So there's much less need for it now than ever before. And it's less influential than ever. So like I say, too little, too late if it does pass. And I could see why the the radio lobby would, would say, well, it's going to cost us money, but in the end, not that much. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. The, the only, I, I think radio still around the world is is there's there's pockets of, of countries and territories that still have it so if we do open up our amfm stations to other artists from around the world then they will do the same they'll reciprocate and give us more money <clears throat> that might make an influence but yeah i i agree it is a little bit too late that's 
think that's why it's happening now is because they, you know, the radio lobbies have lost a little bit of power. It's not the main thing anymore. Yeah. Kilphonic then, your customer, your primary customer is an indie artist, right? Yeah. I mean, we do a lot of B2B stuff. So there's a few indie labels that we represent. But yeah, we we help out artists who do not have publishing deals elsewhere try and get their money. Um, I mean, we are a publishing company, so you know it is a publishing deal with us as well. But we do admin-only deals for the most part. We don't do co-publishing deals where we buy works into people with copyrights. And we try to offer full-service publishing, or we try to offer a full suite of publishing services for an admin rate. So um, we do do sync and collections and A&R services and stuff. But <clears throat> yeah, we uh, we mostly serve independent artists. I mean, there's a few, there's a few like, producers and writers that we represent that do a lot of major label work with, you know, bigger artists, but I don't think we currently have any artists that are like on one of the big three majors. So yeah, it's mostly independence. Very cool. All right, Caleb, last question. What's the best piece of advice that maybe you learned along the way or somebody imparted to you? I think it's it's like twofold. I, I think that there's always the like, be authentic. I I do still believe that. I I still see artists who are authentic doing really well. You know, I think that I've seen too many artists try to be something else. I mean, even like as a songwriter, I remember artists would come into the studio and be like, "Okay, this is like the popular song on the radio right now. Let's let's like recreate it." And it just would never work because just the time lapse, you know, by the time we got the song done, it got recorded, it got placed, it got into the marketing uh, arm of whatever label like that song on the radio is six months old now or a year old so you kind of <clears throat> to chase other people's artist artistry is is never going to really work and i also think that like the second side of that is to really kind of stick to what you like to do i think that so many artists come to me and they're like Everyone's told me to be on TikTok and I hate TikTok. I hate being on TikTok. And, but they're like, you have to do it. You have to do it. And I don't think it's ever going to work if you don't like it. I, I, I have met a handful of artists who are like, I love making content for TikTok. And I'm like, great, that should be your place. If you like playing shows, if you like interacting with artists, like go on tour, go meet your fans in person in real life. Don't try to make a community on TikTok that you're never going to satiate because you're not into it and you don't like it. So I think really kind of ultimately, I guess what I'm saying is being true to yourself is going to, it's going to, it's going to save you a lot of heartache at some point. I mean, if, if your true self doesn't work too, then unfortunately, maybe not the right, it's not the right fit being the music industry. So, and I, I hate to say that because I do, I do think everybody has creativity and artistry in them. And if they want to express it in music, they should, but if you want to be a professional artist, I think you have to, you know, you have to have some sort of quality that connects with people. Um, you got to put stuff out. That's another big thing for me. I, I love going on. I love touring. I think that people really should go on tour if they're going to promote their music. So if you're going to sit in your bedroom and and make records for yourself, then, you know, you're you're an artist, but you're a hobbyist, too. You're not a professional artist. You have to put records out. I, I got asked on a panel one time why people should put records out and i was like because that's what we do we're here to connect with other people in the world as professional artists so yeah put music out be true to yourself and it'll save you heartache you know you mentioned tiktok 
And speaking of royalties and trying to collect them, I mean, if one thing has to be reformed, it's that. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Some some of the bigger, I, I believe Cobalt's one of them that pulled, I think, their music off of TikTok. I've had a few people reach out to me and say, "Hey, why is my music not available on TikTok?" And when I've researched it, it's because one of the writers is a Cobalt writer, and I think they pulled their whole catalog from TikTok. Yeah, TikTok is crazy. I mean, they. First, they don't pay. This is something that people don't know a lot. They don't pay per view. So like Instagram or Meta, you know, they pay and Spotify, obviously, they pay for the number of streams you have. TikTok pays per video. So however many videos are created with your song in it, and they still pay pennies per video. But, you know, I've had people come to me with like, oh, I had this video with 10 million views on TikTok. And I'm like, well, it's only one video. So you're getting like three or four cents for it, you know, and they're devastated but yeah tiktok just does not pay royalties that's and I don't know, i've been upset too i was on a panel in canada one time and the person from cmra told me that they also worked for tiktok and i was like how is that not a conflict of interest to be at a, a royalty collections company and a and a you know mechanical licensing company and not and, and then also work for tiktok with the people you're trying to get money from so i don't know yeah it's a that's just the classic corruption in the music industry. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, yeah. The conflict of interest lives. Yeah, it lives on. And I understand it. I mean, the music industry is small. Like, I mean, I remember when I was getting shocked by like lawyers and, and just realizing there's like not that many law firms really for music. And every artist I ended up producing was like, ended up being on the same law firm as I did. and. We'd have to sign conflict waivers to say that, you know, we understood that there was a conflict there. But outside of law, I mean, there's so many other conflicts that aren't, that aren't legally, you know, regulated where they have to do these things. And yeah, nobody really realizes how, how much conflict and corruption there is. You can find out more about Caleb and Kilphonic Rights at KilphonicRights.com. That's Kilphonic Rights. K-I-L-L-P-H-O-N-I-C, writes, all one word, kilphonicwrites.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn all about the latest in music news, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>